Righto, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for every part of your word, that which leads and instructs us and helps us to understand more about your glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we turn to this text today, we see him doing things that we cannot do, but we see where his heart lies. We see his favour and grace extended to his disciples and we pray that we might also hear him speak to us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, turning to this text this morning seems like a good opportunity to let you in on a family joke. One night aboard the Spirit of Tasmania, which was making its way through the very calm Port Phillip Bay, I happened to say rather stupidly to my wife and my children something to the effect of, I was born to be at sea. After all, the sea was calm and the cruising speed was acceptable and the view was great. A few hours later, when we crossed into Bass Strait, I regretted my words very much as smooth sailing gave way to a rather bumpy and disconcerting sailing experience and my family have not let me forget my words. Having said that, I've never actually been seasick, unlike other members of the family. But I also don't think that that would be too hard for me if I thought about it too long. The upshot of all of this is that I don't profess now to have sturdy sea legs and certainly not in the way that Jesus had sea legs, not surviving boat trips he went on but walking on the sea itself. Now that surely is sea legs. Well, our text comes to us this morning, hot on the heels, to continue the metaphor of last week's miracle of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. We're at this point in time in Jesus' life, just one year out from his death in Jerusalem, and this was at a significant point that Jesus performed this miracle of the 5,000, which was soon followed up by another perhaps the most famous of all his miracles, and one that had a couple of important differences to the one that went before it. Whereas the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 was done in broad daylight, this one happened in the dark. And while the feeding of the 5,000 took place in the midst of the multitudes, this one was completed in a way that only the disciples saw it. And more than that, while the feeding of the 5,000 took place on land, this one took place on water. It's a miracle that causes us to focus our attention on the powerful, providential protection of Jesus for his people, leaving us to contemplate his person and to ask, like the disciples did on the water, the question, who is this man? 
And our answer to that will surely be the same as the disciples gave in the miracle. Surely this is the Son of God. So let's see what's going on in the text which gives real meaning to the term sea legs and see three things with me this morning. First, before we get to the water, let's see the priority Jesus gave to prayer. The priority that Jesus gave to prayer. We see this in verses 22 to 24. As Jesus prayed alone on the mountainside, the multitudes have been dismissed and his disciples are making their way across the lake in a boat without him. Now, as we heard last week, Jesus had done a mighty miracle that day and it was already into the evening, maybe dark enough to be pitch black. The disciples were dispatched and now the crowds had to be sent away. Many people had come from the other side of the lake to hear Jesus speak and to see the miracles that he was doing and perhaps to be healed by him. And so Jesus said to the disciples, perhaps, you go on your way. I'll catch up with you. I'll dismiss the crowds. And you may be wondering first, why did he need to dismiss the crowds? And you may also be wondering, why did he send the disciples away before he dismissed the crowds? Well, let me give you an attempt to answer those questions without getting into too much speculation. We know that these people had come from a long way away and so were a long way from their homes. These people were determined enough to leave their towns, their villages in the countryside and find him on the other side of the lake. These weren't going to be an easy people to shake and so Jesus needed to dismiss them to indicate that his ministry of healing and preaching was done as far as this moment was concerned, in this time and this place. Notice we are told that night was coming upon them and so finding shelter would be important. Factor in too that these people had just seen a tremendous miracle. It would not have been their tendency to just walk away from the miracle worker. They needed some incentive. But you still might be wondering, why would Jesus send his disciples away before sending the multitudes away? Well, we find the answer to that in John chapter 6, verse 15, where it says, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See, Jesus did not want to be declared an earthly king by the multitudes or his disciples, or by anyone. The kingdom that he was bringing in was a kingdom unlike whoever was expecting it. And therefore he did not want to be taken in to be part of a plot on the part of the people to set him up as some sort of king of Israel. And Jesus wanted to make sure that the disciples didn't fall in with the multitudes in in that form of thinking. But maybe another reason that he sent the disciples away is told us in verse 23. He wanted to be alone to pray in a solitary place where apart from the crowds 
and the disciples, he could give time and attention to prayer. Now in the Gospels, Jesus' prayer life is shown to us at least in little snippets. We're told, for instance, that he often sought a place to pray. We know too that he prayed by himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and other places. We're told that he prayed in the morning. We are told that he prayed in the evening. And on more than one occasion, we are told that he prayed all night long. And when Jesus prayed, the Gospels always make it clear that he not only prayed for himself, but that he prayed for his disciples. And so it's not going too far for us, I think, to say that Jesus was on that hillside praying for the Lord's will to be done, not only for himself, but for those disciples out in the boat. Think Moses praying for Joshua down below in the battle. In our Old Testament reading from Exodus 17 this morning, Think how Moses' prayer ensured victory for Joshua as long as he prayed. Now here was Jesus doing the same for his disciples who were in that boat in the midst of the sea. The text tells us that they were being battered by the waves. The boat that they were in was having a tough time, some distance from the shore, maybe in the very middle of the lake. How could Jesus have sent them on alone? Didn't he know what they were about to face? What was Jesus doing sending them out into this stormy lake? Were they safe? What was Jesus doing? He was praying for them. What was Jesus doing? He was praying for them. Were they safe? Jesus was praying for them. They were in the midst of this storm. Jesus was praying for them. And so they couldn't have been more safe if they were in their mother's arms because Jesus was praying for them. Now when we face trials, it's well for us to remember that Jesus knows what's happening to us and that he's not taken surprise by what's happening Listen to these beautiful words from Matthew Henry. When the disciples went to sea, their master went to prayer. Now the same thing can be said of you, every one of you who believes and trusts in Jesus, that in every trial of life, when you go into your trial, your master goes into prayer. And think now too with Jesus at the right hand side of God the Father how he still protects his disciples, his people, and how it is his intercession which helps us in our trials. And so there is a nev- never is a difficulty that we enter in life when his intercession for us from the throne of grace is not active on our behalf. Now don't you think that that would change the way you ought to look at your trials? especially so when we know that these disciples are in this trial precisely because they were being obedient to him. They were not like Jonah who was once in a storm in a boat because of his disobedience. Rather, they obeyed his word and yet they found themselves in this situation. 
You know, sometimes we meet trials and we might think, well, this must mean that the Lord doesn't approve of what I'm doing. Or we say, well, this means I've done something wrong. That may happen sometimes. But it can also happen that when we are doing what the Lord has called us to do, that we will face trials. And in those times we can know that he has not left us alone that he is interceding for us and that he comes to us and it's his voice that we hear above the sound of the waves that come with the trial. So second here, see the encouragement Jesus gave to the disciples. We see this in verses 25 to 33. For perhaps six to ten hours... The disciples had been apart from Jesus. The storm may have lasted as long as that, we don't know. But we do know that they had been fighting their way, struggling their way across the sea for some time until Jesus came to them at the fourth watch, somewhere between three and six in the morning. Now the first the disciples' first reaction to the Lord's appearing was fear. I mean, when someone comes walking on the water in the middle of a storm, It's usually not good news that they're bringing. And so these disciples cry out, it's a ghost. See, they're scared to death, as you would be. And then they realise it's Jesus when he speaks words of peace to them. Don't be afraid, it is I. And suddenly again they note this frightening thing, his sheer power over nature. They had seen him command the wind to stop on the lake. They had seen him earlier that day turn five loaves and two fish into a meal for 5,000 plus and had 12 baskets left over. They had seen all this and now they were watching him walk on water. One commentator says here, the Egyptian hieroglyph, which signifies an impossible thing is two feet on water. Two feet on water. Yet here is Jesus doing the impossible to convey to his disciples that nothing can separate us from the Saviour's reach. Not even a stretch of water can keep Jesus back from coming to his disciples in their time of need, not even a stretch of water by which normally he would not cross. And then we see Peter. Peter, who liked to speak up, so impulsively responds, Lord, let me come to you on the water. I want you to see that Peter's response here was not arrogant. It was not showy. He wasn't trying to show off. In fact, Peter's response was instinctive. It was an act of faith. It was the opposite of fear, which he and all the other members of that boat had been expressing a few minutes ago. It was an act of recognition. He saw that it was his Lord. The word if there should be translated since. Not if it is you, but since it is you, Lord. Let me come to you. He knew that seeing it was Jesus 
that Jesus could enable him to do the impossible also. He grasped something of the significance of Jesus' power over nature and he was willing to say, Lord, I can do this if you instruct me. Bishop Ryle says here, there's a great meaning in this event. It shows us what great things our Lord can do for those who hear his voice and follow him. He can enable them to do things which at one time they would have thought impossible. He can carry them through difficulties and trials which without him they would never have dared to face. He can give them strength to walk through fire and water unharmed and even to get the better of every foe. So we get this picture of Jesus coming together, that he is able and powerful and mighty and he comes to his people in the time of their need and Peter walks, he walks until that moment when he starts to do it by sight and forgets about faith and when he notices the wind and he notices the waves, it's then that he starts to sink but only so far as Jesus will allow him to sink. And of course, there's the other disciples who respond to all this by falling down and worshipping him. They do what no honest believing Jew would ever do to a mere man. They fall down in worship and acknowledge him to be God's own son. Now before we get to the end, let's note two quick things that apply well to us. The first thing I want you to note here is that Jesus let those disciples go a long time into that lake, into that storm, before he came to them. I think very often in the midst of our trials, we keep looking for light at the end of the tunnel. And in some of our trials, that light never seems to show up. Or it's very slow in doing so. We feel like we keep going further and further and deeper into the tunnel and we can't see evidence of the Lord's hand and we can't make sense of it and we allow our feelings to tell us that the Lord has abandoned us. But note again that Jesus let those disciples go a long time before he came to them and he did that not out of spite but to build them up in their faith to help them see their own weakness, to see their own need and then to see the sheer power at his disposal to answer that need. There's another thing I want you to see also. Peter's response to Jesus provides a beautiful picture of what saving faith is. Notice that as long as Peter's focus was fixed on Jesus, he was fine. But the moment Peter's attention was diverted and shifted to the circumstances around him, especially the waves and the wind, well, he began to sink. Doesn't that teach us something about how faith works? It's not the strength of faith that saves us. It's the object of faith that saves us. It's Jesus that saves us. And when our focus is taken off him, 
then our faith falters. When our focus becomes, as Peter did, more on his circumstances and less on Jesus, he began to sink because of that loss of focus. And Jesus had to pull his doubting servant up with the words, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, if our faith is grounded in our circumstances, it will always be like Peter's faith at that moment, going up and down depending on how the circumstances are, good or bad. But if our faith is on the proper object, Jesus, it will be constant because he doesn't fail and he is constant. And he never changes. Of course, this passage also teaches us about the imperfection of faith. Faith can waver. Faith can be uncertain and tinged with doubt. But it's not the quality or the quantity of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. It's the one we put our faith in. He saves And thirdly, and very quickly, we see in verses 34 to 36, the healing Jesus gave to the sick. That boat ride wasn't a joy ride. It had a destination to reach. And that destination wasn't home, but across to Gentile territory, where Jesus was not only welcomed, but in contrast to what happened in Nazareth, there came to him, many came to him for healing. And there he did many miracles, even on those who only reached down to touch the fringe of his garment. If nothing else, the incident highlights both the mercy of Jesus in going there in the first place, but also the nature of faith. There were no preconceived ideas in this part of the world. There were no doubts, unlike the people of Nazareth, who, because they did not have faith, would not go to him. But here was just a willingness and openness for him to do whatever he came to do. And many went home rejoicing, and for the disciples too, much in the way of learning. Well, I certainly learned something that day on the boat, and I've never forgotten the lesson, and I've never said those words again born to be at sea. Even though that was one lesson out of the many thousands that the Lord seeks to teach us all through life. And yet because we are so prone to forget, some lessons have to be repeated. And so here we are taught again this one which we must not fail to forget. Let's call it Life 101, the basic. And that lesson is this. That all of your circumstances, be they up or be they down, are not designed for your happiness, your comfort or your pleasure, but for your growth, your maturity and your perseverance. All of your circumstances, it's not about comfort, happiness or pleasure but growth, maturity, perseverance.
More than that, whether those circumstances be light, breezy and fine, or dark, stormy or foreboding, matters not. These circumstances do not keep the Saviour from his own. And the one who grasped this with both head and heart, who trusts that the Saviour does not forget his own, who believes that nothing can keep him back, not even the thickest darkness or the wildest of storms, that disciple finds a lesson worth more than gold itself. A lesson not quickly forgotten. For you'll have to agree that there are waves of trouble that come crashing upon us of much greater magnitude than those the disciples knew on the sea. And days of difficulty and darkness and sorrow are also part of all our lot that try the faith and trust of even the maturest saint. But according to this, you need not despair that he has forgotten you, for he can come to aid you in the hour of your need in a method that you do not expect. That he comes to us is evidence of his love. That he can end the storm is evidence of his power. That he comes bringing words of comfort is evidence of his mercy that he did it long ago in the Sea of Galilee and still can do it today in the lives of disciples who struggle on against all kinds of storms is what I want you who are under his care to believe and take to heart. Your times are in his hands. Even more so as we come to the table of the Lord, And we remember just what he did in order that this might be true. Let's look to him. Let's pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for this reminder that brings us comfort today. That our times are in your hands. Be they up or down, good or bad, fine or stormy, Your purposes, we can trace them once we look back through the passage of time and see what you were doing. These disciples must have wondered as they battled on and on against the wind what you were doing. But you never let go of them. You were holding them up in prayer. You came to them in the midst of all that they endured and you said to them, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, we confess how easy it is for us to be afraid, how easy it is for us to determine how things are going by the circumstances we live, how easy for us to forget that your voice ruled both the winds and the waves. Grant to us that kind of faith that fixes our focus on you 
no matter what the circumstances, be they fine or be they dark, that our hope in you will be strong and certain and sure. As we sang before, my hope rests firm on Jesus Christ. He is my only plea. We pray this in his name. Amen.